We're looking for two oil boys who can grease us up before each competition. You do the thing you're scared shitless of, and you get the courage after you do it. That's the way it works. That's the dumbass way to work. It should be the other way around. You'll have to excuse my friend. The town is back that way. You should make a radical change in your lifestyle. I mean, the core of man's spirit comes from new experiences. That's the way it works. Don't worry, we'll catch our break too. Just gotta keep our eyes open. All right, hello, welcome to episode 27 of the Looks Like We're Lost podcast. I am Dustin Redazel. And joining me, you might enjoy looking at a picture of his wristwatch. It's Tommy Cooksey. You damn right. And not just my wristwatch, but the wristwatch of anybody who tags me on Instagram. Man, it's like uh, Jocko Willink times a dozen. It is. A lot of people have signed on for the Dylan Richard Run 21 month of June. How are you feeling about it? Um, the, the actual running is getting easier. Like, mm-hmm. you know, a mile, except for yesterday, when I decided to do it after a pretty grueling workout in, you know, 95 degree heat and dead sun. But the actual... I did dist- consider opening this podcast with... He's likely to cycle a barbell until his heart explodes. <laughs> it's Tommy Cooksey. We we weren't far off yesterday, and you know I've I've felt that way in the middle of a CrossFit workout before. I just didn't have the data to prove how bad my heart was screaming. <laughs> I have the data now. Uh, I I lived at uh, about 170, 180 beats per minute for about. I don't know. It was, it was about 14. Oh, you know what? It was 14 minutes and 33 seconds. That's crazy. <laughs> that. Yeah. Yeah. I felt miserable. I felt miserable. A lot of hydration, but yeah, man, uh, the, the run isn't bad. The hard thing, here, here's the hard thing for me. And tell me if, if you, uh, if you've experienced this, it's not my primary modality for the fitness right now. I'm, I'm usually doing about a mile, maybe two miles. And so it's like, I don't, want to go through two pairs of gym clothes in a day. And so I try to time it around my workout. Um, and like yesterday I, you know, I, we, I, I went to the gym around three 30 and then I had to pick up the kids by, you know, five and I was, you know, solo dad last night and he had to work late. So I'm like, when am I going to get this run in? So, you know, the only hard thing, and that's, I think that's probably, the the running of a mile is not the admirable thing. It's the stick to itness of being able to do it every single day. Um, but yeah, how about you? How's it going? You've done some of this training in the past before, so yeah, it's been harder than I thought because I thought you know I've had months where I've put in 120 miles. Yep. Right. Like it's. I figured it'd just be getting back into it, and I can already tell a difference here. On today was day eight. Yep. Then. <laughs> how I was feeling on day three. Yeah. To your point about it being a primary modality, I am already adapting to it. Yeah. Uh, And I'll probably carry this through. Katie and I are talking about doing a half marathon in the fall. Nice. Uh, so, So I'll probably keep picking up the mileage, but it is, you do kind of have to commit to, like I'm going to be a runner and, 
for me, there's always kind of been a little fear of I'm going to have a runner's body. <laughs> the runner's body, yeah. <laughs> Which is also kind of absurd for me because that's probably not in... I'd probably have to lose like 40 more pounds. Wow, yeah. Uh, so It's a slippery slope for me. <laughs> <laughs> you could get there, man. Who knows? You might have it in you to be a great runner. Well... I don't know if, if for uh, for early listeners of the podcast, you'll recall that I ran a sub six mile in Vans and jean shorts. <laughs> That's true. The, yeah. the natural talent is there. It's it's raw talent. Yeah, I I always I look back on the history and I'm like, man, I really have the the um, the body and bone structure for like soccer and running, mm-hmm. and uh, really didn't give a try to either of them. Well, it's just not what you're into. Yeah. I know. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of uh but yeah, I'll I'll at least carry this through. I'm going to do the uh Raleigh rundown put on by uh our friend Sandy Roberts. I know. I'm so bummed I can't do that. Sir Walter running. Yeah, that's awesome. Going to try to break that 6-minute mile for the first time since I was a teenager. I think me, you and at least Mabunga, maybe Quint and G too. Need to go to a track one Saturday, get each get each other all hyped up, and all of us try to break the six minute. And go for it. I think I think the peer pressure alone, especially with someone like Mabunga leading the pack, because yeah, surely he can, he can run. A, surely he can run a sub six at this point, right? He, yeah, he can do it. He yeah. uh, he actually he actually drove out to a track, attempted it. And he got it. I forget the exact time. I want to say it was like five forty something. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. How, I don't so. think I'm that close. But like I said, I'm just. I'm more so doing it as like I want to see if I can do it every day. And it's more of a time commitment than the thirty-one burpees I did, in, you know, two Januarys ago. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, I'm, I'm liking it. I'm liking it. I I, I went for like a half uh, or not a half marathon. Jeez, who do I think I am? I'm getting all cocky here. One mile a day, and all of a sudden, I'm Nick Barr. Um, uh, I did a 5K on Easter. And for a week, my hip flexors were like... I looked... I was kind of like a, like a lawn chair. Like, I couldn't fully extend my body. At least oh, yeah. now, like, I do a run the next day. Zero soreness. Like, my calves are fine. My ankles are fine. My hips are fine. Slowly yeah. adapting. Yeah, I do think that running and doing a doing it every day on something that is manageable, like a mile's not crazy. Not it's bad. not a huge time investment. And doing it every day does remind you of some some really basic stuff about your ability to move. Yeah. Yeah. So I've liked having it back in my life. I do find it difficult to to train in only one modality which is basically what I've been doing. I did a Peloton ride on Sunday yeah. after running a mile yeah. just to like give the joints a break and yep. do something else. Yeah. But yeah, just doing the same thing on repetition, it's huge credit to Dylan. What's he at? He's like at 156 straight days or yeah. something like that. It's something like that. Yeah, it's really imp- – It's I, unbelievable. Yeah, it's really awesome. impressive. It's impressive. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So – I'm liking it, and I'm glad we're. He he messaged me and said that it is providing him that little extra motivation each day because there's some accountability here. So, cool. 
Well, I'm sure by the end of the month we're gonna feel great. Oh I'm gonna God. be, I'm gonna be so fast. Oh, I'm gonna have calves of gold, Ca- diamonds of gold. As uh, what was his name? Uh, was it Tim Horton? No. Uh, the the P ninety X the P ninety X guy. What's his name? Oh, I could see him. No, uh, not gonna got, do got, it. Uh, to- this is Tony, gonna be worse than me. I got it. No, it's Tony Horton. Tony Horton, P ninety X. What a yeah. save! Yeah, dude. I thought Tony Horton was the gazelle guy. Uh, let's see, Tony. Horton. This is like worse than me trying oh, no, to remember Chuggy. To- Tony Horton is the is the P ninety X guy, and he has not aged well. My gosh, that's terrifying. But I, I did P90X for a little while. This was like when I was getting really bored with, uh, you know, the lifetime fitnesses of the world, the planet fitnesses. But yeah. I but I was still that guy that was like, CrossFit is BS, dude. That's not. So I was somewhere in between, and I was like, I'm going to do P- I'm gonna do CrossFit at home, P90X. But there was one workout where, because that guy never stopped talking during the workouts. And... Uh, he was, he was, there was something with like arms and he would flex his tricep muscle and he'd say, look at that diamonds of gold. And it stuck with me because it makes no sense. And it bothers me so much to this day. That That's, that's over a decade ago that he said that in my ear hole. Is the tricep shaped like a diamond? Doesn't seem like it. Everybody says horseshoe. It's a diamond of gold. No, dude, it's definitely, a, it's definitely a tri, a tricep. It's try. There's three muscles there. You're missing a muscle. You're underdeveloped. Incredible stuff. Anyway. Tony Horton. Yeah, how did, you know, how did he, we end up here? I don't know. It's it's embarrassing. I was just saying it's worse than me trying to remember Chugi or whatever it was out of nowhere. Yeah, I know. Chugi. And then we talked about what Chugi was and what Chugi is. Just yeah. just great stuff. Yeah. Did you have uh, you have anything for today? Because... I mean, I could I could start going on some things, but I felt like you had some material. I had some things, so I've I've uh, I've been lis- I've been listening to the book Raising an Adult, um, which which has had a lot of thoughts swirling. Um, in some ways, I feel attacked. Uh, it's it's basically it's it's like the I think there's another book called Free Range Child. Essentially, it's like. You know, kids, our parents' generation especially, they just sort of went out and played and they figured stuff out. There wasn't a lot to entertain them. The parents didn't do a lot to entertain them. They just did and they figured stuff out and that made well-adjusted adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a lot of ways, uh, it took me a while to become an adjusted adult because my parents did do a lot for me. You know, they taught me a lot about work and, you know, we, we were out there cutting the grass and picking weeds and, you know, dragging sticks around and stuff like this. But they did clear the path a lot more than, you know, would maybe would maybe have made me be a little more adjusted and, and not as reliant. And so it's like being a millennial parent, there's like this, there's a lot of pressure to to right the tide or right the ship, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, there's been some stuff around that. And then recently and I, you know, it'll be my recommendation. So I'm just knocking it out at the beginning, but I'm only about 30 minutes into it. But the armchair expert with uh, Russell Brand, I'm too cheap to uh, subscribe to the his podcast. <laughs> uh, but getting a dose of him, he's – I don't even know how to explain the guy. I mean we, we all know who Russell Brand the actor is. But Russell Brand the, uh, I don't know, Buddhist philosopher, I don't know what he is. 
but he's got a lot of thoughts. The first 30 minutes are almost entirely about like addiction and, Mm -hmm. uh, how that manifests itself. And, you know, people who are addicts aren't losers. They're actually the opposite. They're just so full of everything. And, uh, he had a couple of like idioms that I'm, I just wanted to lob, just wanted to lob your way, see how they so, hit, see how they hit. So, um, one of them was envy is your own unfulfilled potential projected onto another person. Yeah, yeah. I 100% relate to that one. Yeah. I think uh, I've actually thought of this exact thing, and maybe maybe I've heard him say it because I read Russell Brand's book Recovery. Okay. When I was dealing with my own addiction issues. Yeah. Uh, so maybe I even heard him go off on that before, but. Yeah, I think a uh, human comparison, right? Like when you see somebody else, like there's no real, we've talked about this before, there's no real hardline definition of success. Yeah. It is different for every individual. And when you see somebody who is successful at a thing that you wish you were successful at, it's actually information about a possibility for you. Yeah. Like, I don't know why some people want to be, grow up to be athletes. Some people want to be in the sciences. Some people, like, get hooked on the idea of being, like, a corporate lawyer. Yeah. It's like somewhere along the line, you see some model for behavior. And you start pushing towards it. You know, and the the context as to why could be one of a thousand things. Yeah. I'm sure raising an adult probably covers some of this. It does indeed, yeah. And so, like, you pick a model and you start going for it. And I think that's part of the problem when you... I'm probably jumping too far on a gap here, but when parents stress out about what social media brings to their children and what comparison now looks like when the pool to compare yourself isn't a town or a neighborhood of 150 people, but it's, you know, the online world of 4 billion Uh and everybody looks like it's going great. Like, I think that envy becomes overwhelming, like less inspiration and more certainty that you cannot uh, achieve. Right. Yeah. I I found this to be, It's not by no means is it revolutionary, right? But but the way it was said, and and I and I find it to be pervasive, not not as much so anymore. But like, you know, in a lot of facets of life, the things that that I do, and and in some cases you do, are set up as somewhat of a competition. Mm-hmm. Um. Sometimes sales environments are set up as competitions when they send out like these rankings of people's attainment, right? And, and it almost immediately, it's like the, it, the list comes out and you look at the top person and you're like, luck, luck, <laughs> got the right such and such, got the right that. Instead of the first reaction, and this is, this is just me, instead of the first reaction being like, wow, that's awesome, good for them. 
they're having a great year. It's like, not me. <sighs> and I, you know, ball up my fists, you know, in a, in a CrossFit gym, even though, you know, it's, it's become le- it's become more about the health of it and less about like the, where do you rank on the leaderboard with the whiteboard, so to speak, there's an innate level of competition no matter what. So, well, you know, the sibling quote to this is, and it's funny to uh, bring this guy up in a podcast about this exact topic about envy being a gap. Yeah. Joe Rogan always says, comparison is the thief of joy. Love that. And I think when you talk about like envy recognizing as a gap in your own potential, it's similar to that poem, The Guest House, about inviting every single emotion in with an open heart and being grateful that it's here. And recognize not what the emotion is doing to you, but what it's doing for you. It's allowing you to recognize things that you wish for yourself. Mm. Like, I feel this when uh, I read a book earlier this year called The Midnight Library. And I'm sadly blanking on the uh, the author's name. Will you Google The Midnight Library while, while I'm talking? Jamie. Yeah, I got you. <laughs> Thank you. But this this author has... Like he sells hundreds of thousands of copies, has hundreds of thousands of followers, and the book has all these crazy great reviews. And I read it, and you know, three and a half stars. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's entertaining. Take, but there was take nothing... that take that Matt Haig, author <laughs> author of the Midnight Library. I know books. I actually feel worse now that you found his <laughs> name for saying that. But, but like, it's definitely like, it's a good story. It's fun. It's fine. But it's not the, it's not the, it's not this overwhelming thing. It's like you talking about like the sales guy to be like luck, right? Yeah. It's, I saw it and I felt a certain I read it and I felt a certain amount of bitterness for all that this guy had. Mm. When really what he has is like the life, I should say this, the career, the profession that I wish I had. Mm-hmm. So I think like, can I take in that, that feeling I get when I see that and welcome it in and be like, okay, well, this is great. This should be like a good sign for me. If I actually think I can do this, yeah. like now it's just time to do the work. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. It seems like maybe envy. I think maybe it's maybe it's a little more complex than that. Maybe not. I'm, as I'm thinking through this, because it's it's one thing to realize. Yeah, I guess the projection part. But I'm thinking like it's uh, it's your unrealized potential. With the. Lack of willingness to sacrifice what's needed to reach that potential or something like this. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. There, there feelings might be, without yeah. a plan. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to let that one dance around for a little while. It's undeveloped, but, but it is a, it's a good call out. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I thought that was really good. Um, this is just a phrase that I love that he said that, uh, I'm going to probably use this. He said he operates at this point in his life. Sober for like 20 years almost. Um, 
recognizing he's a sensitive dude. He said, I just tend to operate right now on like Sesame Street ethics. <laughs> like, <laughs> be kind to people, treat people with respect, be helpful, uh, be a servant, right? Um, and I'm like, yeah. what a simple way to look at that that is couldn't be more straightforward. It's such a better way to go too. And I, I think to your your point about even trying to like, where do you, how do you describe Russell Brand? Like I kind of think of him as like a runaway train intellectually. Like when yeah. you listen to him talk, he gets going and it's just like thought after thought yes. spilling together and yeah. they're, they're going and it's, it's powerful. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of brain and verbiage coming out, Yep. but it, it does it. It's always, it's kind of difficult to contain. Yeah. The, yeah, I agree. And some of the podcast is that we're almost, it's almost like becomes just static because it's so like, I don't know how you're getting to this point because it's like a snowball effect. But when he pauses and drops a line, it's like, oh, there you go. You just summarized. He found it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think he's pretty dead on. It sounds like he's at least self-aware. And this has been my experience with, you know, being in rooms with a lot of addicts too, is it is just a ultra sensitive group. Mm. He said, he uh, said maybe, addiction is amplified attachment. Mm. Um, and it's using some sort of material means or whatever to solve a more spiritual or maybe existential issue, whether it be self-esteem, connectedness, well-being. And yeah. it's, you know, unhappiness with the current state trying to reach another state, but you know, it's it's the amplified attachment thing was really an interesting way to put that. Yeah, I I I get that. Uh, I guess what I was fixated on was the Sesame Street ethics. Like, yeah. if you're a really like sensitive or amplified type of person, and if you put a little like intellectual horsepower behind it, like he obviously has, yeah. It is very difficult to look at the rules of this world and not recognize just outrageous hypocrisy. Oh yeah, all over the place. Yeah, and so so that triggers the moral licensing that everybody is somewhat prone to. And when you think about like uh, addicts and the excuses they make for their actions, it very often comes from a place of like somewhat justified logic about who owes them what, why they're owed, why they're allowed to do this, why yeah. they don't have to adhere to society's rules, why the rules are broken in the first place. Yeah. And so I think that anybody who finds themselves in that way, if they can do the work to get it down, like here are my very sense, my very simple principles and like in a lot of ways, that's what the accountability mirror was meant to do for me. Like here is the things I care about. Like just get it real small. Yeah. And like even when I talk about like my own parenting and I do try to think about it in terms of raising adults, like who I hope my children will become. Yeah. It's like, you know, just hammer it down to 
I would like them to be strong, smart, and kind. Yeah. Right. Like that. I can. I can grab onto that. Yeah. Yeah. I, we. I've. I've sort of. And and this, something you said on a on a previous conversation, where you know you and Walter put the put away the the dishes, the, you know the, the silverware together. Mm-hmm. This this book sort of we'll go back now. We're jumping back to raising raising adult raising an adult. Um, it highlights like what a four and five year old are because you know two year old can do some things. They definitely need a lot of guidance. But a four and five year old, I've just realized that like after dinner, I'm like, all right, Everett, go ahead and throw you know empty your plate in the trash can, and then go ahead and put it in the dishwasher and put your silver in the dishwasher. And he's like happy to do it. Kids want they want to do more things, but in a lot of cases it's easier for us to do it right mm-hmm. because we put it in the right way when the you know the quote right way um and but but the danger and and why this book has been so revealing to me is i can absolutely see the situation where it goes from me cleaning up their toys or cleaning up the dinner after them to me doing their homework because they just have too much homework it is a straight line path right to it. Um, and and what it that and what it devastating. I know. Well, it's it's so common, and it's and it's uh, you know, it's it, the, one one of the things that that this lady brings up is she's like, if if the stakes are too high for them to do something alone as a sixth grader, this is just an example. And you know, you'll you'd still be there, but for them, if they're gonna fly somewhere. If the stakes are too high for them to check in for their flight, like maybe they're traveling with a group or something, as a sixth grader, are they going to be any less high as a seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth grader? What about when they go to college? Mm. Right? And do you continue to, as we say, clear the runway for them all the way through until they get into the work world and then you just throw them to the wolves? Right? And... It's not hard to see, you know, no parent is doing it out of anything other than love. They, if, if you have the means, but letting a kid, it was in, and coincidentally, the daily dad, uh, email came out the other day and it was like, let your kid, your kid, it's okay if your kids struggle some, it's good for mm-hmm. them. Let them struggle. They figure stuff out. Um, so anyway, it's been both rewarding and also extremely challenging for someone who's a bit of, I'm a bit of a control freak, as you know, mm-hmm. to just live and let live, man. If he's on the monkey you bars, the- I'm like, I'm like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> and he fell off of him the other day and I'm like, Oh my gosh, dude. I think I do a decent job of giving leash. It's hard to tell it. Two it's hard plus, to tell, right? yeah, right, like, yeah. Uh, you know, there's just limits about what can, what harm can be done, and what he can get into. Yeah, but you know, the corollary I'm thinking about with with kids failing is from the book Range. Yeah, David Epstein. Yeah, yep. Love when. That. They get kids into specializing in a sport and just hammering on that singular specialty because, like, 
if they can be the best at this thing. And because they spend all their time focused on that thing, they're unprepared when they eventually like hit the, the limits on how far that sport can take them. Yeah. And they're not used to dealing not just with other modalities of life, but they just haven't gotten enough failures. They haven't gotten enough broad spectrum failure and they haven't had to try starting enough new things yeah to just like get used to fail and pivot which is a huge part of not just succeeding in life but being emotionally healthy well dude i can i can speak absolutely from experience you know i <clears throat> for one reason or another and i haven't really probably dug into this on therapy enough maybe it'll come out in the wash but you know getting good grades became my thing, right? It just way more important than learning. <laughs> well, according, yeah, and that, so raising an adult, she does talk. She was a Stanford dean, and she talks about the issues with the education system and the college admissions process, and so on and so forth. And it's so that that's part of it too. That's really interesting. But you know, mm. I would take the AP courses I knew I could ace. I'd take the next level down of the classes that I knew would push me. Um, in college, you know, hey, look, you have like what eight weeks to drop a course, whatever it is. If it if the future wasn't looking bright and I just wasn't figuring it out, too much too too much pressure. I just dropped the course, right? Mm. In order to maintain a four zero, whatever that means anymore, right? And for me, I don't know if we have any college age kids that listen to this, but there. I won't say regret, but I look back and I'm like, damn, if I just would have taken some courses that maybe didn't correlate with my, uh, my major that really would have stretched me. Like I took a couple honors courses that were, I think I've said this before. They were called on being a self. And Mm -hmm. it's like, I had never thought about that kind of stuff. Um, Darwin is, there was one on like Darwinism in a modern utopia or something like bizarre like this. And I'm like, I have never put these thoughts together and I loved them. They were hard. I spent, I would spend infinite hours on those as in, in relation to, you know, like a marketing class. Right. But what, what I'm getting to is it's like aced, aced, aced. I was number six in my class in high school, you know, all, all but one a, or, you know, all a's, but you know, one B in chemistry in college. And it's like, I got it. I know what I'm doing. And then I get into this job. <laughs> Sageworks was my first job. And it's just like swing and a miss, swing and a miss, stri- just striking out every single day. And it hit me like a ton of damn bricks. Like I, it almost, I can definitely say that that was, that was one of the first times I've really, looking back on it, really struggled with like depression. Hmm. So I was, I didn't, you know, I had one friend down here, plus the cycling of people that were working with me, um, getting told no 150 to 200 times a day, not sleeping great, not eating great because I didn't have any money and getting to a point where I think I even told my parents, I was like, if I don't make, if I don't, if I don't crack this code in the next like two months, I'm going to have to move back to Maryland. Yeah. Cause I don't know what else I'm going to do down here. I don't know anybody or how to get a job. Like 
I felt a little bit unprepared. How did you crack it? Because by the time I got to SageWorks, you were oh, man. considered one of the top guys. I worked harder on on that than than maybe anything I've ever worked on in the past. Mm. Like study studying the pitch, practicing the pitch, record literally recording myself on a little mini tape. You know the little mini tape recorders because this is when we all had oh, Blackberries yeah. with like you know one gig of memory. I would record my. Pitch. I was. I had the highest brick breaker score of anyone I'd ever met. Yeah, right. Yeah, you're you're a natural. <laughs> but yeah, dude, I, I think I think I I just I, I just did what I would have done in school. Like the only thing I knew how I was like I'm gonna figure this out. I need to accept rejection, and uh, it was sort of like I got a couple of wins, and uh, you know back in that day it was. You hit your you hit your goal two out of three months, or you have to find something new. It was a very cutthroat thing, and fortunately, I was you know I had a manager who was like, "You, I can see the potential. You're right there. You had a couple close misses. Like I think I missed my goal one month because a guy said yes for like a five thousand dollar order, and it was like this sense of relief. I was like, "Yes, I got it. I'm I'm gonna be good for the next probably twelve months at least." And then he said, but I want to split the payments in three payments, three installments. It's a cash basis company, right? So, you know, I missed the goal. But anyway, I think I just worked my ass off and accepted that I was going to suck for a while um, and would take help from anybody. I'd sit in with any of the managers, sit on anybody's call. It was just a humbling experience. And, uh. Sometimes I think I need that smack in the face again just to kind of get back to the you know the roots of I don't know hard work. The, the interesting flip side of this though and I guess it's kind of a risk, right? Because I was very probably in a very similar but like was more concerned about the grades, like for some reason that got into my, under my skin, like the grades meant everything. It was very connected to my sense of identity, like mm-hmm. those had to be good. Like, you know, all my friends were athletes because I played sports, but because those were my friends, like I was always the smart person Yep. in the <clears throat> friend group Yeah. instead of like being friends with the people who were smarter than me. Yep. And look, there were definitely some guys on those teams that were smarter than me, but it just wasn't the, it wasn't the way we thought of ourselves. Right. Right. It's like you pick up a little bit of like, this is who you are in the group. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about both of us hitting that point and then finally ending up at the same point. And I, same deal. Like I'd sold everything. And like, if I didn't make it at SageWorks, like, as it, as a failure, as at zero. Yeah, right? yeah. So, like, I just kept grinding in that job until like I found an exit strategy. Yeah, there, there was some, and for me, there, there was a little bit of. I had a Goggins moment before there was a Goggins, David Goggins, where I had heard some grumblings from some some people back in my hometown. That were like, oh, look at him. He's going out and doing this thing. Yeah, because, you know, you're from a small town. People don't leave a small town. Mm. And so there was part of me that was like, I am, I'm not moving back. And I'm going to make this work. 
and I'm going to make something of myself. And so there was part of me that was almost negatively motivated. <laughs> like, like well, as Michael well, Jordan would say, and I took that personally. <laughs> took that personally. Well, what I'm thinking about is like, as much as we're dogging on the not experiencing enough failure often enough, you do kind of walk a thin line when you're raising a kid that they just need a load of confidence in their personal identity. Correct. And I definitely believe in like embracing failure is the healthier way as an adult to establish that confidence. Mm -hmm. Like real confidence is knowing you gave it all you got and then the outcome doesn't matter. Yep. But I also think that when you're a kid and you can't understand all that complexity, just being somebody who's like, no, I'm, I'm a person who gets A's. Yeah. is valuable. Yeah. Yeah, what she wh- the way she talks about it in the book is you know, and this is just as you know, as be- being a, a present parent is like regardless of the outcome, you don't necessarily you celebrate the outcome at the right amount. <laughs> like you don't have a you don't buy them a trophy because they put a dish in the dishwasher. Um but you also use failures as a way to celebrate the process, the way they worked through it, even if they didn't get the end result. And also as they get a little bit older, not four and five years old, but eight, nine, ten years old to work on the process. Like, mm. hey, what what you did was great, but next time try it this way and this is why you should try it this way. But anyway, it's been really insightful and it's – uh. I don't know, like I said, it's been a little bit of an indictment as I'm reading it. I'm like, oh my gosh. Got some <laughs> got some holes in your game? Definitely some holes in my game. But uh you know. It's been yeah, good. Don't we all? But yeah, yeah, let's let's take a let's take a moment to celebrate those holes as an opportunity to focus on the process. That's it. As you're wearing a shirt that says, for those that can't see, the process. I love it. Sixers game tonight. You should feel honored. Um I would say the NCAA tournament, Chiefs playoffs games, and Joel Embiid in the playoffs are the only sporting events I still care about, and the CrossFit games. Well, naturally. And and here I am, DVRing the game wow. so I can podcast in the regular scheduled time. Let me check the score. I'm kidding. What uh? What is what is the love for Embiid? Is was he KU? He went to KU, and I, you know, what's weird is I actually love him as an as an immigrant story. Oh, okay. He's from Cameroon. He didn't start playing basketball until he was like sixteen, seventeen years old, and he was already over seven feet. So, <laughs> when you look at the high school tapes of him, and he's just this incredibly goofy, non-functional foreigner. And it shouldn't work. Yeah. But he has a gift. He works it hard. And now here he is, one of the best Tim players in the entire world. And he's not afraid to clown anybody. Yeah. He somehow is more fluent in like social media and America's sense of humor than 99% of Americans. And he's not ashamed of the fact that he is a giant. Like, you hear this all the time in basketball that, like, 
tall guys don't like playing basketball. They just play it because, you know, it was there for them. Yeah. It's like they're trapped by their, their gift. By their massive so, frame, yeah. Yeah, and like everywhere they go, they stand out, and people are like, oh, you play ball? And it's like, come on, man, there's there's more to me. Right. But like he just embraces it. He loves what it is. And for that, I have love for him. You know, I uh, I know nothing about Joel Embiid, except for the fact that I think you went to a, uh, a uh, Hornets uh, Sixers game, and you had a sign that said, he has risen Embiid. And, uh, and that is for no matter what, whenever I hear his name, I think of you with a sign, almost like at a WWE that anytime he came down the court, you just throw it up in there. Love it. You know, what stinks about that? We, it's probably the most, it's definitely the most I've ever paid for, uh, sporting event tickets personally. Um, I've been taken to some nice events, but it didn't come out of the pocket. Right. But this is out of pocket. Me and Katie, it was her first NBA game, maybe. Uh, and I said, okay, let's, we're going to go ahead and get like right down on the, yeah. on the court. That's yeah. the only way to appreciate how big these guys are. Yeah. And we're going because it's Embiid, and he's especially massive. It'll be incredible. Uh, we get there, and Embiid was sitting because he had like tweaked his oh, ankle. Dude, I knew there was a wrinkle to this story. I forgot that he didn't play. <laughs> Just unbelievable. You should have just you walked know, we up drove to him. a couple of hours. You should have walked yeah. up to him and uh, been like, "You play basketball?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd be. I would be scared. He'd make. It's have you uh, have you ever tried to approach a famous person? Just out of the blue. <laughs> uh, I had a really uh, probably awkward moment. Um, it so so. Yes, Cal Ripken was my hero growing up. Like, Cal Ripken Jr. was the man. And um, we would go to the game early. We stood where they drive their cars in to the lot. And he rolled his window down for the driver to get in. And uh, I couldn't even get words to come out to, like, toss him a ball to throw him. I couldn't even say, like, Cal, I want your autograph. I was just frozen seeing him right in front of me. So I, I really froze. I didn't know what to say. I have nothing in common with these people. Um, <laughs> I, had a, I had a really awkward encounter with the lead singer of the early November, whom you're familiar yeah. with. Very. Um, and as a former emo kid, I had a lot of love for the early November and Ace Enders. Well, he played at a, like acoustic-only show in, in Carborough, Cat's Cradle. And it was like him, and it was like um, uh, Chris Connell. For, I think it's Chris Connell from uh, Saves the Day. Um, uh, gosh, why is Death uh, uh, Dashboard? Why is he slipping me right now? Christopher Caraba. Christopher Caraba. They all played acoustic sets. That is an awesome venue and lineup. It was fantastic, fantastic, and they all just there was no. It was just them on an acoustic guitar. Does that hit your top ten concerts? Yeah, I th- that would have to be in the top 10. That have to be okay. in the top 10. Yeah. So you you tried to create a bond. So anyway, so, so I saw Ace. <laughs> saw Ace, as I call him, Ace. Sometimes I call him sure. Arthur, you know, his 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 Christian name. And uh, like I walk up to the booth and he's just sitting there. And 
thanks to Instagram and Twitter, I knew that he had had a kid. <laughs> and so I buy a record. Uh, and I'm like, man, your music was really foundational to me in college. And I really appreciate it. He's like, dude, thanks. That means a lot. Yeah, obviously, he's just glad handing me. <laughs> I'm just standing there, the beer in my hand. And I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, I just say, so how's your daughter? <laughs> wow. And he looks at me and he goes, nice yeah, he looks at me and he's like, yeah, she's good, man. Everything's good, man. Family life is good. Hey, thanks for buying the record. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that's my, that's my son. I have no idea what to say to you. I have no idea. I'm going to go. Like, uh, it's, it's almost rough. like seeing him as a, and I was, I was 25 and yep. I'm, and I, I'm immediately transported back to like. 16 17 year old me that heard their first album like you know anyway what about you well yeah i mean the thing i think of right away i don't know what it was about this interaction so when i was at the olympics in 2008 uh the i I guess we were probably still calling them the dream team back then but the men's u.s men's basketball team I'm working in the aquatic center, and they're all showing up to watch Phelps swim. Yep. And so uh, I'm I'm in a pretty great spot, like located with all the photographers, and uh, it gives me kind of access to where the athletes were sitting, where they were actually cordoned off from everybody else. And so there's a... One of the guys, you know, I went to school in Kentucky, just outside of Lexington, and Tayshawn Prince, who played at University of Kentucky, he's there, and he's completely by himself, and he's, like, leaning on the rail, and so even though there's, like, 10 feet between us and, like, a gate, I just, like, walk over, and I said something to the effect of, like, Hey, Tayshawn, just wanted to say uh, good luck in the Olympics. Awesome that you're on the team. Uh, went to school in Lexington. Big fan. He 100% could hear me. Yeah. There's there's no <laughs> way he can't hear me. And he just stares out at the pool, doesn't flinch. The people around him look at me and then look, look back. He doesn't move at all, and I'm just like, so I just like, Fade away. (laughs) It was, it was definitely the meme of Homer Simpson sliding into the hedge. Yeah, dude, that's amazing. And I, it, it stuck with me for like days. Like I felt so small. Oh yes, I bet some days you're just sitting there and that thought creeps into your head and you're like, start to sweat a little bit. Like, oh, I feel so bad for that. You know, twenty something that said that. Oh. Yeah, I think I was 22, and it's just, it's such a weird thing to even have wanted to say anything. It is. Like, what was I looking for there? And then to feel bad about it. Like, I don't know what all that was. (laughs) Well, I'm proud of you. I just know it was awkward, and I looked like a fool. I'm proud of you. Yeah, I, I had a an event last last year. I was flying back from Kentucky, and I was had to uh, go via Nashville. And I'm sitting in there in the airport doing some work. And I look over and I'm like, oh, I think that's Mandy Moore. And as I kind of look over there again, and I'm like, oh, I don't know if me and Mandy Moore just made eye contact. And she might know that I'm looking and I notice that it's her. So now I'm like trying to play it cool because I want to take a picture and show Annie that I'm in the airport with Mandy Moore. Like, <laughs> like that's yeah. something. 
but I'm like, I'm not sure. So then like, I'm, I see some guy walk by and I'm Googling Mandy Moore husband to see if it's the right guy. And it's the singer of the band Dawes, um, who have a great song when my time comes. But, uh, I just kept kind of glancing over like, yep, that's Mandy Moore. Yep. That's Mandy Moore. And then I don't know. I was like, Annie's like, you should go say hi to her. I'm like, I don't know what would I say to Mandy Moore? Yeah. What do you say? Hey, hey, love you on This Is Us. Very convincing old person. <laughs> like, I don't know what I say. <laughs> yeah. They didn't do you any favors with that Bob wig. Yeah, yeah. It's not it's such a greatest look. But anyway, yeah. Well, I don't know what it is about. I think it's more about, like, you want to be able to tell people about the story that you uh, you said something to somebody famous and they acknowledged you. Like, that has... You're going to put it on your resume. <laughs> you know what? I do have one good where it went well. Let me hear it. You, you got to redeem yourself because Tayshawn is laughing at you right now. Friend of the pod. Eric Berry, chief safety. Oh, yeah. Cancer survivor. Uh, he was a Tennessee volunteer. And I'm at a Tennessee Vols game with Justin the Jackhammer McLeod. <laughs> Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. And Justin sees Eric Berry from a distance of must have been 200 yards. We were so far away. Head on a swivel. And, and, you know, we're both a little drunk. Yep. And Justin's like, oh, my God, it's EB29, the greatest (laughs) player in both of our lives. (laughs) It's not a lie. And I'm also excited. We run full, whatever full sprint was for us at that time. Yeah, right. We get there completely winded. We've broken a sweat. We're like hands on our knees. And Justin says something like, Eric Berry, you're the greatest man in my life. <laughs> and I'm just like winded. I'm like, I feel the same way. Yes. And he was the most gracious, jubilant, smiling ear to ear. Let's us like throws his arms around us, takes the picture. That's awesome. Makes fun of my busted knee that in some asphalt fiasco <laughs> trying to play play football. Yep. I was bleeding through my jeans and it was awesome and the picture turned out great. I remember the picture, and, yeah. And I'll probably hang a framed copy in my gym it in des- the next few months. It deserves to be there. You know, I I wonder if it's something about like uh especially like defensive players because it's more about the unit than it is about the individual player. They have helmets on. You don't you don't really see them. They probably like to be they probably like to be noticed. I bet they do. Get the love. Yeah. 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 There's probably a difference. Like if you're, you know, Tayshon Prince is about 6'10". Yeah, 6'9", 7'2", wingspan. I looked them up. <laughs> it, nice. Great wingspan. Great great wingspan. NBA players in general have to get it more than anybody. Oh, you my gosh. You cannot hide. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a tough role. Even a point right, even man. a point guard is like six three, six four, right? <clears throat> yeah, that's we were just talking about this, Katie and I. Uh, 
some for some reason we were talking about Steph Curry. And Katie's like, and he's like a little guy. And she's like, wait, is he actually little? Yeah. It's like, hey, he's like 6'4". You know, he's like yeah. my size. Yeah. So he's not little at all. Like, if you saw him in in real life, you'd be like, this is a this is a big dude. That's what always, I mean, that's what gets me is like, you know, someone like you, we we have a, a friend who's like, you know, 6'7", and you see them and you're like, and see you, you're like, well, that, that's a tall dude. And mm-hmm. you're like, see, you see Steph Curry out there running around and you're like, what a... What a shrimp, not a shrimp. Well, a well shrimp. above average. And I know because I know average. I'm five foot nine. <laughs> Way to own it. Way I, to own you it. You know, I, it's one of those things that I was always like pushing for 5'10. I'm like, I could be 5'10. <laughs> and I just she realized that at, by almost 36, she's not happening. It's, we're not going to get there. So, yeah, I. <laughs> I think it was on our podcast that Matt Pittman finally admitted he was 5'11". Oh, after, after over a decade of friendship where he just hung on to six foot yep. with steel claws. I'd have been the same way, man. Uh, you got anything else? Are we ready to hit the No, man. Here? I don't know how we got here, but I'm glad we did. Oh, yeah. The Lost Sometimes Boys. There. The Lost Boys. <laughs> the I Lost love Boys. It. I was, uh, I had in, it's funny that we did get through all this because one of the questions I thought about uncorking tonight was, are there any things that you think about all the time that we just would never talk about on this podcast? And for me, one of my answers would have definitely been NBA basketball. Yeah. Or what about just just, NBA basketball players? Totally big leaguing you. <laughs> you know, I probably needed it at that point in time. Who did I think I was? Tried to have a conversation. So cocky. The thing, pro- probably something that I think about that maybe we touch on on the pod. The uh, the nutritional content of food. Mm. I think about it all the time. Just, just obsessed. You need to read in defense of food. Yeah, free yourself from the concerns about. Yeah, it does actually a pretty good deep dive on how nutrition is mostly American propaganda for big mm. agriculture. I can, I could see that. Let me, as I think about the nutritional content of food, let me just drop a pre recommendation on you. Uh, Annie got these things from Costco, where the cost is low. They are almonds covered in a thin mint chocolate coating. That sounds pretty good. Dangerously delicious and not that bad for you. So you're welcome if you you have a Costco. If you live in a place without a Costco, maybe you have a Sam's Club or a BJ's Wholesale Club. (laughs) Pity pity for you. Yeah. I worked at a BJ's for... uh, one evening, and then I quit. <laughs> well, that's a quick job. I wasn't I wasn't cut out for the scanning. Just wasn't cut out for it. Too much anxiety about bagging stuff. It just was a chaotic mess. Anyway, yeah. Man, I do like the idea of every time you drop a brand, dropping their slogan <laughs> right into it. That's what you have to. You got to let the people know what time it is. 
it's like, uh, so I had a spill and I just reached for the bounty, the quilted quicker picker upper. (laughs) (laughs) Spill be gone. And if anybody listening to this podcast did not just sing the bounty uh, jingle, curses to you. Un-American. Yeah, exactly. All right. Let me dig up the question of the week here. Question of the week. I think it's a good one. And goes right into the raising an adult conversation we've been having. So question of the week is, what did the people who raised me teach me about love? What lessons do I want to keep? What do I want to challenge? Are you prepared to answer? I want to open the door for you like a gentleman and have you lead off. Uh, Tommy has won the toss and elected to <laughs> I have defer. deferred. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll preface this by saying the people who raised me were my parents, mom and dad, Glenn and Annette Redazel. And I would keep 90%, maybe 99% of what they taught me. Um, tons of good stuff. But... I'll narrow it to maybe a standout trait in each of them. Um, My dad, I think, taught me that a lot of love is just about consistency. Mm. Um, Being... Like being trustworthy and predictable is a lot about having your own priorities and duties in line and performing those relentlessly and there was never a question for me that he was going like I don't know what it's like to to feel like you know maybe your dad's work is in danger or maybe like he's not going to be able to provide right Mm -hmm. like he showed up for his work I didn't really understand it as a kid but like it was always solid, and I would hear about promotions. Yeah. And so I also tell this story about him a lot, and I'll keep it brief because I I wrote about it. I probably said it in this podcast before, talked about it in the Dad Conversations podcast. Uh, but there was a time where we, the me and my brothers, we got spanked, and this is just how I remember it. He spanked us. We were all in tears, as little kids tend to be. Mm-hmm. And it's it was because we had just been like giving my mom the worst time of it all day long. Like we've been terrible to her. Yeah. And he told us that uh, something to the effect of, "I love you boys more than anything. You know, die for any of you. Do anything for you." etc. But that's not half as much as I love your mother. And so while I never felt like any gap in him being there for us, there was also no question about where his priorities were. Yeah. And I, I felt like the, the sense of, and duty maybe like robs it of its romance but like his devotion to my mom was always on display and i think i'm not always 
great at that, but there's no question, you know, in my own marriage, I, yeah. I can be a little self-involved, but there's no question in my mind that modeling that for my children is, is as much about showing love to my kids because I'm giving them, I'm showing them something about what it means to love as an adult. Uh huh. Yeah. And not just that. It's not just like this fanciful emotion you get caught up in. Yeah. It's a daily practice. It's so funny you I, say I, that. I, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say when we were, when we did our, um, our marriage counseling, it's one of the more radical things at the time that friend in real life, maybe friend of the pod, uh, Tanner, um, Tanner Griffith, uh, Griffin, Griffith, Griffin, mm. Griffin. <laughs> now that you've settled that. Yeah. They're so close, but Pastor Tanner, uh, absolutely iterated to us was your kids will know love by the way that you love each other. And I don't know. Mm. I had never. Not that my parents didn't love each other, right? But I don't know. Just the way it was said was like, oh, my gosh, that that makes so much sense. No, that's such a cleaner way of saying what I was trying to say. There's something when you're a little kid, when those are the primary adults in your life and you see the way that they treat each other, that changes the way you think about the world and what people owe each other and versus when you see the two people who claim to love each other at odds yeah. and self-involved and yeah uh, and there's some safety to it, too, isn't it right for the record it's tanner griffith griffith th i think i said it that way first and then i then i second guessed you myself did. as it was coming out yeah you got nervous i got nervous man oh, i got so nervous <laughs> um so, so I'll try to be a little, little quicker with my mom. Uh, my mom is still to this day probably like the most well-intentioned person I've ever known. Yeah, like just a very like good-hearted person, always striving to do the right thing. And there's a phrase I I sometimes make fun of. And I always feel bad for making fun of it because it's a great attitude to have. But she would always say like, oh, what an excellent opportunity to serve. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Sesame Street ethics, baby. <laughs> yeah. But like she really believes it. Yeah. And like she, she really believes that there is like that is what we are on this earth to do. Yeah. And like, you know, the Jesus model life and servant leadership and – like she to me is like done a better job of that and look like everyone you know it's it's probably no surprise if you've listened to this podcast a lot and had to hear me go on like segues and tangents like she can also get caught up in like the nuance of things mm-hmm. but the overall like desire to look at a situation say how can i help it and if so like i'm going to do everything i can with a lack of guile and self-interest has always amazed me. Yeah. And, you know, I think so much of, uh, I think so much of love is about 
understanding that what is best for others is actually best for you too. And I also think about this when, like, if you're feeling down, you know, I got a really encouraging message just from a complete stranger uh, over the weekend, just sent it to me over Instagram. And he was going through some anxiety and depression, apparently he read some things I wrote, and he messaged me something really encouraging. And hopefully it made him feel better. It made me feel better. And it made it reminded me that, like, if you're ever feeling down, like, do something for someone else. Mm-hmm. And it really helps your mood. That's, you know, Russell Brand would know about that. That's a that's one of the twelve steps. Act, you know, be of service. Yeah. Uh, so those are the those are the main things like uh, devotion and service, and uh, you know, they like each other too, which is nice. That to helps. See. That helps. The the challenge, and I don't even know if this is a challenge. I, I may even be wrong on this, but the thing I might challenge is, you know, neither of my parents would be the type of person who would write a book with the word fuck in it, mm-hmm. right? I have done that. I'm trying to do it again. And that's not, you know opinions on that word aside, it's that I think that there is a lot more good to be found in some of the dirtier corners of the world. You know, I I think to my point about my mom, like she would have no problem doing the toughest jobs and would actually feel honored to to work jobs that other people would be like, eh, that's icky, or I don't want to do that. Yeah. If she thought it was like a good act of service helping another human being. I think that, you know, they're, they're both very good people and they have a strong moral compass and that can also lead to some, some judgments mm-hmm. about, about certain behaviors. And like I said, I may be wrong on this. And as my kids get older, I may get a little bit more straight and narrow. But right now I'm open to behaviors that I don't necessarily agree with and believing that there's something there that can enhance my love for the world rather than shut myself off against it. Yeah. So I I hope that doesn't paint an unfair caricature because like I think the world of my parents, but yeah. It's something I'm kind of attuned to. Yeah, man. Well, thank you for sharing. That's really good. Thank you for leading off because it helps me process the kind of things that I'm thinking about. So, Well, normally I kind of force you to like stumble through the lumps while I get my thoughts in clean, precise order. Well, I can tell you that mine will not be clean and precise. I'll probably keep it pretty brief. Um, So, yeah, I I was also raised by my parents, Greg and Julie. Um. You know, one. I think one of the things, and you know, they they <clears throat> they are not together anymore. And in a in a roundabout way, to exactly what you said, um, is that love can be hard. They taught me that love can be hard, and even in a situation where two people love each other, it life can throw a lot of curveballs, have a lot of challenges, and it's maybe not anybody's specific fault. Um but love is 
hard. And I don't mean that as in it's like hard to love the person you're with or love your kids or whatever. But it takes a an intentional choice every single day to put yourself aside and put the people around you above you um, or in front of you, maybe not above you. But, um, you know, that so that that to me is something they taught me about love that is maybe a hard thing to learn. And it took me many years to really come to that conclusion and be okay with it. But um, maybe maybe hard is a t- is the wrong word, but maybe work is the right word. Love I takes like love work. Love is hard. Yeah, it I, is. I think right? that. Yeah, a lot of the things that are worth doing are are difficult. Well, I mean, you know, and if you really thank you for cementing that because if you really think about like what the Bible is about, it's a love story, right? And for those of the Christian faith, they'll know like God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And Jesus's time on earth was literally spent loving the worst people on earth. That is not it's not because Jesus had transcended human nature or anything like this. He did what was hard, choosing to love the people that, quite frankly, could be considered unlovable, right? Especially Mm -hmm. in biblical times. And so whether you're talking about love for friends, love for family, it is hard because it does take, it takes some self-sacrifice and it takes intentionality. It's not like, you know, certainly, you know, your parents, the model, they've probably been married, what, 30, 40 years now? Oh, I should probably know that. That's all right. That's Scared a roundabout me. number. A couple decades. We'll put it that way. A couple decades. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm 35. Joe's 30. They've been married over 40 years, I think. Yeah. I'll tell you a story. This, this is a quick sidebar. So we had a professor in, um, he's taught one of the honors classes about on being a self. I cannot remember his name off the top of my head, but one of the best professors I ever had. And he told this, this example of like marriage. He'd been married for like 35, 40 years. And he's like, you know, love is great. Marriage is great. But one morning, some mornings you'll be laying in bed and your wife will call down to you and say, would you like some tea? And you don't answer right away because you're kind of coming out of your fog. So she says again, in the sweetest way possible, would you like some tea? And through no fault of hers, you're just in a bad mood and you just scream down, yeah, I got to take a shit first. Leave me alone. I want some tea. (laughs) And it was like, you know, I still laugh about it to this day, but you know. That's 100% what it is. You're right. But, but it's, it's an intentionality. It's, it's making the decision every day. If, if it was all you know, roses and butterflies, you know, there, there'd be, it'd be easy for everyone, right? It's a choice and it's uh, it takes effort. So anyway, uh, th- that's probably one of the things that they taught me and, and maybe unintentionally and not even negatively, just a reality of what it is. I think something that my parents were really good at, um, was, interjecting fun and play and that as a as a show of their love um and i think it helped me to embrace that as as i got older 
It helps me to do that with my wife, with my kids, um, a sort of not taking everything too seriously with each other. Mm. And yeah, some days it's easier than others, especially with toddlers, right? Because when they want to play is when it's like, okay, this is crunch time. Got to get our shoes on. We got to get out the door or Hey, it's bedtime. But you know, being, being able to bring ourselves to a level that we can all have fun together and joke and be, be fun with each other. And that was the way we kind of showed love in our house. And so, so that's something that I, I learned and I really love. And it's helpful that Annie has a good sense of humor because <laughs> if she did it, this, this would be, this would be tough. Yeah. Yeah. To say the least. Well, and, thank you for sharing. Yeah, man. And then the one thing I would challenge and I'll, I'll end with oh, this one. I forgot because, we had the challenge. Yeah. The, the, the challenge one I w- to me was the hard part. The challenge for me is, 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 is uh, the importance of self-love. And while it is a little bit counterintuitive to what I said at the beginning where it involves some uh, self de- I don't know self-denial is probably the wrong word, but you need to sac- self-sacrifice. Just as important is to make sure that you are taking care of your own physical, mental, spiritual, relational health. Um, not denying yourself time with your guy friends because you think, well, then I'm leaving my wife with the kids, right? Because I can say from experience that after I've had a night with my guy friends, I come back a better person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, whether, whether we're talking about therapy, which obviously we're both big advocates for, but even just the simple things like prioritizing exercise, prioritizing sleep, healthy eating, all these things that, um, there, I think there's a difference between maybe self-sacrifice and I don't want to use the word martyrdom. It's a little harsh, but like totally giving yourself over, um, to your own detriment. Right. I think it creates a lot of resentment. I think it creates a lot unhealthy lifestyle. So I think self-love is what I'd like to challenge a little bit and make sure that my kids know that that is a priority. Um, I, you know, I talk about the golden rule and, uh, you know, love God above all else, love, love thy neighbor as thyself. And I've said it before. I'll say it real quick again. The second, the third part of that is love thyself, because if you love your neighbor as yourself and you hate yourself, then you hate your neighbor. Right. Yeah. So, um, anyway, th- those are my you know thoughts. The other no, I appreciate that, man. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, the, uh, the the thing I wanted to tack on to that loving yourself portion that I think it's a really thin line between love and admiration. Mm. Like, I don't think that gap is as big as we imagine it to be. And I think somebody who doesn't take care of themselves is really hard to admire. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, to your point about envy being, recognizing a gap in your potential. When you look at somebody, and it can be a spouse or a parent, and you admire who they are, forget about like the, the sense of love that is kind of, I don't want to say assumed in that relationship, but just like if you didn't know them at all, you would still be like, 
man, this person's impressive. Yeah. Like, I think that's really valuable in helping the relationship along. Oh yeah. You know, as long as, as long as you are also aren't a dick. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, dude, I totally, I think there, there, there's absolute, you know, it's, it's one of these things and I, it's, it's, it's a, uh, yeah, it's probably, I mean, it's, 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 it's an old, you know, love, love is a, it's a, it's a, it's slow burn of the embers over a long period of time. It's not a gasoline fire. That's lust. Mm. and constant admiration, constant working on each other, on your, on yourself. That, that's what's, that's, that's the, you know, stoking the flame. That's keeping the fire burning. If you, if you ignore the fire, the fire goes out, right? So, yeah. Part of that. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think it's a, I do think it's a journey and like developing yourself is, like both people are responsible for that when we're talking about a marriage. Yeah. And like, I feel a sense of responsibility around that as a parent, of course, like I've got to keep growing to be who my children need me to be. But also like in a relationship, each person kind of has a responsibility to keep on bettering themselves to the degree that they can because it helps keep that admiration a two-way street. Yeah. It's a, uh, I don't know, something to play around with yeah, later, man. but thought was, but you I got like a, that. You got a basketball game to get to. Let's knock out these recommendations real quick. Oh, man, what do you got? What I mean, do you, you have so many, re- can I, can I start with my recommendation? Yeah, yeah, please. Because it's a real, it's a real layup for you. Let's go ahead. My recommendation is go back through our first 26 episodes. And listen to Tommy Cooksey's recommendations. Oh, we've been knocking them out here. We watched Mayor of Easttown. We watched Made for Love, and we have not been disappointed. It has been filling. Like I don't have new stuff to bring to the pod because I've been so pleased filling up my calendar with Tommy Cooksey's recommendations. Well, thank you for saying that, uh, and thank you to my wife for making me watch shows that maybe I wouldn't have otherwise watched. Because Mayor of Easttown would have easily slipped under the radar. It's not flashy, mm-hmm. but damn, is it good! Oh, it's good. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Scintillating. Some uh, may just sit with some uncomfortable emotions. For, I told you, you're going to need about 20 to 30 minutes after each episode to really just go watch like House Hunters or something. As I say, <laughs> me and uh, it re- takes me back to the original True Detective with oh, McConaughey yeah. and, and Woody. Katie and I would always DVR it on Sunday, avoid spoilers, which was tough for that show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Watch it on Monday night so that we had the DVR'd new episode of How I Met Your Mother to to cleanse the palate right I, afterwards. Um, this otherwise, if I try to go to sleep right after it, um, you know, it's going to be. I, I'm not going to have a lot of recovery on my chipper app, if you will. Yeah, my, you know, <laughs> love love the tie-in. My uh, the chipper app, a Tommy Cooksey recommendation. A Tommy Cooksey recommendation. We're just knocking them out, man. I, only the best for my people. Um. And then, I'll, you know, my, mine was, uh, we've, we actually pretty much talked about my recommendation for 60% of the podcast, but, and I'm only, you know, a third of the way through, but armchair expert, uh, big fan of the podcast, but the one with Russell Brand, 
gives you some insight into some of the things that we talked about tonight. And uh, I don't know, it's listening to someone like Russell Brand, who's done a lot of work, a lot of thinking, is really kind of inspiring about the potential of humans. But also, Mm -hmm. like, I don't know, the the simplicity of being a human. We overcomplicate it with all these things, but it's quite simple. Sesame We'd Street ethics. We'd be happier ethics. if we lived like dolphins, man. Yeah, yeah, or Elmo. Sesame Street ethics, man. The uh, to lob in for anyone who didn't listen to last week, I did finish the book "Breath or Breathe." I get confused on the word by mm-hmm. James Nestor, and uh, it was great. I I have been nonstop thinking about my breathing, and for people who tune in next week, we'll be having on our first repeat guest of the podcast. Uh, Ryan Varga is going to be joining us. He's been doing a lot of breath work and monitoring its impact on his heart rate variability. Tommy and I have been looking at our fitness data. Are you a data guy or a data guy? Data. Yeah, data. Perfect. Yeah, I say it the right the way. The only way to say the only way to say it. Yeah. And neither one of us understand HRV at all. Nope. So hopefully we get a little bit of a primer on that. And you know, always good to catch up with a friend. That's it. All right. I got nothing else for you. I think we bounced back from a four and a half star episode last week to a five star this Man, week. You've- five stars four and a half rounded up last week it definitely rounded I felt up better felt better about it on the edit yeah uh all right I you had a lot of good it. stuff in that tiny tiny head of yours this week thank Thanks you for sharing thank you it's because i don't have a hat on tonight <laughs> all right dude enjoy all that right. game man talk i'll to talk you later, to you man. later dude